I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to a special episode of Just the Right Book. This is a podcast for curious, engaged readers that helps everyone discover new books in all genres and gives you unique insights into your favorite authors and sort of what's going on in the literary world. We have one last special re-release for you before our season two premiere next week. So we thought it would be a good idea to take a look back on our very first episode. In that episode, Lovey Ajayi spoke to us about her first book, I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual. Episode one also features our very first What's on the Front Table with Lisa Muscatine, the owner of the legendary bookstore in Washington, D.C., Politics and Prose. And it'll be interesting to listen to that conversation again, because Lisa and I spoke in December of 16, and um, we had just had an election. We talked about a lot of current issues in political books. So it'll be interesting to see whether we have a different perspective today or a similar perspective. And we're going to have her back on our very first episode of the second season. So maybe we'll talk about that a little bit as well. So let's take a look back on our first episode of Just the Right Book. So 500,000 followers. How long have you been blogging and what got you started doing that? I've been blogging for 13 years. Wow. And uh, yeah, yeah, a long time. I started blogging back in college. I was basically kind of peer pressured into doing it by my friends because I was a columnist for the school paper and my friends just knew I was naturally goofy. <laughs> and they were like, you start a blog. And I was like, all right. So, well, back then it was called web blogging. <laughs> right. And um, I went on Zanga. I fired up a new site and I basically have my entire college career documented. I was writing about whatever randomness I felt like writing about college life, you know, exams I wasn't studying for. And <laughs> uh, I did that throughout my uh, undergrad career. So when I graduated, I deleted that blog because I was like, I've outgrown this and uh, started a new one on August 8th, 2006. And that blog became awesomelovey.com. So you have a lot of fanatical fans. And I have to say, I I, I guess you can't call it binge, binge watch. I binge read uh, your blogs uh, to get a, you know, just a sense of your voice. I'd been reading about you, but I hadn't been following your blog. And I was struck by a number of things. One was your wit. The other was your energy, and the other was the extraordinary way you have to tell the truth. Is that, what? which of those qualities do you think have made these 500,000 people a month your fanatical fans? Oh my goodness. I think it's a combination. A lot of my readers who, they actually named themselves uh, Love Nation. <laughs> <laughs> Not, a like, mm-hmm. Not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. Yeah, not a bad thing at all. And um, really, a lot of times they tell me I am their best friend in their head. I'm, I'm the person who says what they were thinking and dare not to say. So when I write, you feel like you're basically at brunch with me. Yeah. And you are right in front of me because I talk to people, not at them. Mm. And um, yeah, that's, that's what really makes people draw to my blog. They'll find one piece 
and then end up there reading five or six. You know, one of the things that it made me think about, there's a couple of different advice columns, you know, like Cheryl Strayed had a Dear Sugar. And one of the things that made me think about, as I as I read your book and I thought, wow, I bet a lot of people want to be asking you for advice. I mean, probably they want you to just use your magic wand and fix their life. But can you imagine starting a uh, an advice column where you're really one-on-one helping these people, but it's public? I've actually thought about it. It's so funny that you said that. I've actually really thought about having an advice you'd column. You'd be because- genius. You'd be, lovey, you'd be genius at this because here's the thing. I, you know, a lot of times, most of us, maybe you on a bad day, we like to fool ourselves, right? We like to make up why things aren't going right or why we always have bad boyfriends or why we hate our job. I bet you'd be really good at setting them straight and having them think about it in a different way. I have actually really thought about it. I, it's so funny that you bring this up, and I think you might prompt me to do it. Um, what's funny is my first, when I was writing for the school paper, I had an advice column. <laughs> oh, but, you know, you just have, because the thing that I think um, in reading the book I was struck by is, you know, a lot of times we have to hold up some image of ourselves. And I think what you do is make it safe for people to feel safe about who they really are. And then, as you are clear about, is when you're yourself you're most likely to have really good things happen. It's when you're trying to be like something else. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing about my writing, too. A lot of people are like, oh, my gosh, half the things you say, I couldn't get away with saying it. And I'm like, you know, it's because the humor kind of gets people's defenses down. Exactly. they're more receptive to the message. And, you know, everything I say is from a place of thoughtfulness and love. Like, so even though I'm the person who keeps it real, I'm not the person who uses that as an excuse to be a hateful shrew. I'm the person who just... It's very direct about how I say it. So sometimes people are like, that is actually refreshing to hear that. I, I think that's true. And then the, the other part of it is I noticed in um, one of the articles I read about you that you uh, were quoted as saying, if I have a contribution to make, it's to get people to think hard truths, even when it's difficult. Honestly, it's what I also try to do with the book is – um. I think we just need to turn the mirror on each other mm-hmm. and point out what we're doing that, that's absurd. A lot of comedy is really just pointing out the absurdities of the world and making commentary around it. So it is one of those things where, you know, tough conversations, we have to have them as opposed to avoiding them. Because here's the thing, once we have them, we might breathe a sigh of relief. And we're so afraid of the actual conversation itself. So we just do everything we can to not have and that's counterproductive. So my thing is, if I can make people have these tough conversations in thoughtful ways, so at least you can get it off the plate, get it off your plate. It's one less thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder, you have a chapter in here on racism. And one of the things that you said was, um, how do we fight racism and racial injustice? I'm not sure, but I think part of it has to be that racists recognize themselves and that everyone sees how they are contributing to the system. Let's just throw all the cards on the table. But I think you could start even at a at what might seem like a lower bar. I'm a white person. 
I don't remotely consider myself racist, but I bet there are things that I do or say that probably smack of racism inadvertently. So how do you get, how do you, let's even start with people who would be, you know, sick if they thought they were doing something that was racist. That's a good place maybe to start a conversation. Start with people who already want to do it the right way. Right. This is why I had the privilege chapter in the book, too, is a lot of times we hear about privilege and we think it almighty means we are somehow doing something personally to harm others. And when a lot of white people hear privilege, they're like, wait, but I've been working hard. That's not the point. That's not the point. I think just breaking down this giant concept, because people hear it and it just feels like this abstract concept. And then just breaking it down into examples that people can kind of relate to. So, mm-hmm. you know, even using the example of walking into a store and being able to get Band-Aids that are considered nude, and that nude is your color as opposed to anybody else's. <laughs> right. So even that is a privilege. Or I even use myself as an example. I do a lot of speaking engagements at conferences, and a lot of times I, they give me those mics, you know, the mics that come across your ear yeah. that has a little thing that comes across your mouth. So the whole point of the mic, it's... it's um hands-free. So when I was at the Boston Book Festival in October, in the beginning of October, I put on one of the mics and of course it was like tan, right? Mm. The next week I spoke, actually the week before I had spoken at um, the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And when I was there, they brought me mic choices, different shades of brown to pick from. And I was like, wait a minute, you mean this whole time? (laughs) This mic was supposed to actually match my skin tone. I just assumed that they were supposed to be tan just because that's how they manufacture them. No, the point of the mics is that they're not supposed to be visible. I had no clue that this mic this entire time was supposed to match me until I was given the choice. Yeah. So, you know, even talking about that is just saying that when you're able to move in the world without noticing your skin tone and without noticing that you're not represented, itself is a massive privilege that you have if you're a white person. Yeah. And, and you know, I think about it because uh, my parents are immigrants and I came here and felt very, you know, I was born here, but my parents had just gotten here. They didn't speak English. And I felt very much like an outsider, but I didn't look like an outsider. Right. I sort of could get lost in the crowd and they, you know, I didn't have the blonde hair and the blue eyes I wanted. Uh, but I could sort of disappear into the crowd and not seem any different. And when you're young, it seems to me, or at least for me, you don't want to be different. You want to be like, exactly. I wanted to be named like Betty or something. Right. And I, I definitely understand that because I was born and raised in Nigeria and came to the United States when I was nine. So imagine a nine-year-old yeah. who is coming from a different country, has a different name that's not that easy to pronounce for everybody, has a strong accent, and at nine... I was like, oh, God, I don't want to be different. And how was so, it? What was it like? Oh, my goodness. Um, it was jarring to me because it was the first time I was ever the new girl. And it was the first time I ever felt like I had to doubt myself or that the person that I am is somehow laughable because kids would tease me about my accent. They'd tease me about, you know, the food I'd bring to lunch. I wasn't bringing sandwiches. I was bringing rice and stew. Um so for me, I, how I learned to kind of overcome is, well, one, I was funny, so I made friends easy. Yeah. But two, I also mimicked how my friends spoke to lose my accent. Mm. And um, by the first year of high school, I didn't have a strong accent like I had before. I was able to mostly blend in as long as, you know, I wasn't angry or or 
super happy because that's when the accent comes out of nowhere. <laughs> and what brought your parents uh, to the United States? My sister was supposed to be starting college, and they didn't want her to go to college in Nigeria because at that point there was a bunch of strikes at the universities, so they thought it was a good time to come here. And did people make up things about what they assumed your life in Nigeria was like? Absolutely, and that's why I, did, that's why I wrote that chapter on Africa in my book. Um, yeah, people asking questions like, oh, my gosh, so like, do you have lions that you play with in your <laughs> black friend? I was like, I have never seen a lion before. In fact, the only time I saw a lion was on Disney's Lion King. So like, they were like, oh, my God, you had TV? Yes, I've been watching Disney since I was two. Yes, we had videotapes. We had VCRs. Yes, we have television. We have electricity. And understanding that, oh, my goodness. So, wow, being African is something to be made fun of. And that was new for me. Yeah. And and tough, I bet. Yeah. Like, you know, and also, like, they would think I was, they would mix uh, being Nigerian with being Jamaican. And I was like, it's not even the same continent. <laughs> like, oh, my God, please go get a map. And then at what point did you feel not, self-conscious about that or different or didn't care? College is when I really started embracing that part of me because I saw other people who were African and who embraced their culture. And I realized that, you know what, this thing that makes you different actually makes you kind of awesome. So hold on to it. Yeah. It takes a while, though, to figure that out. Right. Because, again, when you're young, you don't want to be the odd man out. You don't think being different is cool. You want to be just like everybody else and rock the same hairstyle and the same shoes and talk the right. same. But then the older you get, you start realizing the value of that uniqueness. Exactly. So what what was um, what is your favorite chapter in the book? My favorite chapter in the book? Um, the one that makes people laugh the most, actually, has been uh, chapter three. Oh, about Because my babyhood goes yeah. bad. Yeah. <laughs> That one is the one that people uh, quote to me the most. And why do you think? Because they see themselves in it very much, or they they see somebody they know in it. Because it's a chapter where I talk about the bad relationship decisions we all make or our friends make that we've seen happen. And essentially, you just either have to sit there and watch it unfold and be there to be like, yeah, it'll be okay. Or you tell them the truth and they see the light. But either way, I think we all have gone through terrible uh, relationships. And where we know better, but the reason why we kind of state is because they have a certain skill. <laughs> Do you find people make the same bad relationship mistakes over and over again, or they invent new ones? Oh, man, over and over again. Absolutely. (laughs) We're like creatures of habit. So we end up doing the same thing, dating the same people, but in different packages. It's just human nature until we finally snap out of it like, okay, I've had enough of this foolishness. I'm going to go do better and pick better people. Now, what's it like? You've got like the biggest media queens on the planet, like Oprah and Shonda Rhimes in your corner. You're on Oprah's Super Soul 100 list, and Shonda first noticed you when you were doing uh, scandal recaps. Does that feel surreal? Does it feel right? It feels surreal in like the way that's like the person that you've admired for a long time is now a fan of yours. That's surreal. It's it's super unreal. Anytime I get an email from Shonda, I'm like, what? Like, I see her name in my inbox. I'm just like, I can't believe I just got an email from Shonda Rhimes. Have you met um, them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually ended um funny enough, I met Shonda two years ago, like, in person at an event, Essence Black Woman in Hollywood, and she fangled over me, was like, oh, my God, I love you. I was like, what? And then uh, 
Oprah, being on her Super Soul 100 list, went to L.A. for uh, a, a brunch for the honorees. And then she, I also, her team loved me and they had me come back to actually interview her mm. on the own TV. Oh, that's lot. right. So, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That was incredible. Now, are they, how were they in real life compared to what you expected? They were exactly what I expected, even yeah. better. Like just, and I, I mean, both of them are very self-assured. And I love when I see women being that way because mm-hmm. we're not expected to be. People will ask, oh my God, why are you so confident? Why cannot be? Um, so it's always it's powerful to be in the presence of powerful women. It's just one of those things that is like I get back to my room after the day and I'm just like, wow, that was amazing. That was so affirming. And it's inspiring. Oh, oh, my goodness. Absolutely. It just tells me that I need to keep on doing what I've been doing. Because they didn't spring whole that way, I don't assume. Right. It's because they focus on, the, on doing good work over the years. And I think that's one thing that both Oprah and Shonda have been about is just creating good content for people to consume. Yeah. So, and talking about doing good things, tell us about your nonprofit uh, that that um, you've spent so much time on called Red Pump Project. Yeah. So the Red Pump Project uh, is my seven-year-old nonprofit, and we raise awareness about the impact of HIV and AIDS on women and girls. And I started it with a friend of mine, Karen, because I ended up finding out that um, one of my friends had 20 cousins who'd been orphaned by AIDS-related complications, like their parents died from age-related complications, Mm -hmm. and they live with her grandmother in Malawi. So for me, it was one of those things that's like, oh, I didn't even know HIV and AIDS still a problem. I had stopped hearing about it. Right. And uh, Karen had one of her friends, one of her really close friends, ends up telling her that he's HIV positive, and his brother was too. So we were just like, how are their parents feeling? How's their mom feeling? And we realized that women really bear the brunt of any epidemic of this one in particular because even when we're not the ones who are infected, we're the caretakers, we're the moms, the aunts. And then, you know, society doesn't really give women space to be sexual, even though they want us to be sexy. Right. So we wanted to really create this organization to decrease stigma, to talk about it openly, to make it to be where women don't feel the shame. And um, if they're living with it, hey, don't feel the shame. We're standing with you. If you're not living with it, don't get it. And here's how you keep yourself safe. So, yeah, Red Pump is national. We have a team of women across the country. Um, doing workshops on on empowerment education around the um, HIV and AIDS epidemic. Well, congratulations for doing Thank that you. work, you know, because I, like you, I started reading about Red Pump and I thought, gee, I, I kind of thought that we had gotten that all set. No. And the other thing you're bringing up where you talk about the problem with the way we've gotten with social media, and I thought about that. I was watching the uh, Music Awards last night. And there was a number that I found, you know, highly sexual. And it made me wonder, I mean, I'm a woman in my late 60s, so it could be that I'm just like, you know, old and cranky. But it made me wonder about what do performances like that say to young women about who they ought to be? To your point, we want our women to be sexy but not sexually Active. What what message is that sending? Is that okay? Does it make it safe? Does it make it all right? Does it sort of tip the scales? Um, I think it's important for messages to be like varying. So if it was just that message constantly, which you know a lot of music really is is just about sexualization of women's bodies. That's when the problem comes. Mm. It needs balance. It needs to show other viewpoints. So 
yes, you can show the sexy, but then show something else to have people have a variety of perspectives. So that's what I think is always wrong is when the singular story is being told about anything. Right. And I worry that there is only a single story that young women might be seeing or hearing and the pressure on social media for them to be a certain way. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where we also have to be discerning about how we, the, the media that we're consuming and how it's affecting us. You know, some of us are better equipped or better prepared or have been trained to know how to absorb certain messages and throw some away, but others don't have that. So it's one of those things where we then have to police the type of content we consume mm. or we're allowing our kids to consume because they're super impressionable. Yeah, it's something I worry about. And I think, you know, parents, we had we had um, an author at the bookstore that I'm with uh, who talked about uh, this issue with social media and girls. And we had 600 uh, moms show up trying to understand how they can help their girls manage through this where they've got peer pressure to be some way, they've got their own motivations, and then then there's the parents trying to figure out how they can help them. Yeah, I think it just comes down to having conversations about, yeah. okay, That's what did what you they said. How does that make you feel? What do you take from it? Just being really open and having that debrief is important. Well, you know, I do think it's a huge value Lovey, that you're doing what you're doing because, you know, I would recommend parents reading your book because I think it would give them context for Mm -hmm. conversations with their daughters or their sisters or because you you, you make it, you you do a great job of making it safe to say things that they might not otherwise say because they don't think someone will believe them or they don't have the right to say it. Or it would be embarrassing. So I really, I really appreciate and admire how you're changing that landscape for people to have those conversations. Yeah, I've, get, I've gotten uh, a bunch of messages from parents who said, like, I read your book and I realized I need to share this with my teenager. So, yeah, like people have actually been giving the book to their teenagers to read. And um, I went to an elementary school to speak, to a high school to speak also. So, like, high schoolers, a librarian was like, oh, yeah, I know the kids have to get this book. So they have it stocked because my book, even though, you know, my audience is mostly adults, there's a lot of things that could uh, spark conversation in there with kids. And I think I think kids of, like, 16 easily could read this book. Some people have actually had their 13-year-olds read oh, this I book. Oh, so. I, I absolutely think uh, 15, 16-year-olds, and if they are – really out there in the world. I don't know why a 13 or a 14-year-old, I think that would be up to the parents, but 15 right. or 16, I think it, particularly if the parents read it at the same time that their kid was reading it, would be really valuable. I'm always amazed when customers come in the bookstore and they're they're picking out a book and they go, oh, I don't want it if it's got um, oral sex in it, or if it's got this or that, and I'm like, you really think your daughter doesn't know about this, right? But if they read it at the same time, it would give them a great basis for a conversation. Yeah, like my, and you know, it's funny thing is, my book is not even that explicit, so it isn't. It wouldn't even be. So it's one of those things where absolutely, I actually encourage parents to get this for their teenagers because I there's a lot of concepts, and I think one of my gifts is being able to 
explain very big concepts mm. in in um, relatable ways. So, you know, because my whole thing is I don't want to just be speaking to the choir, preaching to the choir. I want it to be where someone who's even never picked up my work can pick up this book and perfectly understand what I'm saying. Exactly. So I have a couple of closing questions for you. One is, as we mentioned, I'm judging you. It quickly became a New York Times bestseller. Your fans are already anxious to find out what's next for you. But I think we decided, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> next for me, yes. So this advice column, I need to work on that. I need to. I, I think you got to get this going. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if I should do it on my site or if I should do it on a, in a, like a national magazine um, on their digital site. So maybe like a Marie Claire Glamour. I, I'm um, seeing it in a, in a magazine in print, and digitally on their magazine. Dear Lovey. I'm with that. Dear Lovey. I'm with that. Yeah. I am so going to pitch that to somebody <laughs> and see, because lo- I've been thinking about it. I just hadn't made a move on it. I have two more questions for you. What's the book that changed your life? Okay. The book that changed my life, I would say The Broke Diary, or a couple of books. There's a, I love reading, because I mm-hmm. feel like if you're a writer, you have to consume a lot of reading. You have to like read a lot, so right. I do that. But one of my favorite books ever is uh, The Broke Diaries by Angela Nizzle. And it was the first book that ever made me laugh out loud in public. Angela Nizzle had a, she was in college and she actually had a blog. And she used to write about how broke she was. Like, for example, I remember <laughs> one line that had me really laughing. And it was a line where she was saying she opened up her cupboard and found a grit. Not grits, but a grit. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, that's hysterical. And reading her book really kind of, showed me, even without me understanding that it was showing me that women could write humor Mm. and actually publish, be published in this. And for me, I kept in the back of my head that I was like, okay, eventually I could actually probably do this because this this book shows me that I could do this. So I've always kept that book as in my forefront. I actually ended up meeting Angela and designing her website, and she ended up being one of the writers on one of my favorite shows ever, Scrubs. And it's one of those full circle moments. She ended up blurbing my book and writing a quote about how much she loved my book. Mm, nice full circle, huh? Complete circle. It was so good. And and we finally met in person this year. And it was like I've known her forever. That's great. I love I love stories like that. And I don't normally ask our authors this question, but I know you're a shoe maniac. Yes, I so am. So tell me, <laughs> describe for me your favorite shoe. Oh, my goodness. Um... Well, so Red Pump is called the Red Pump Project because we use red shoes as, like, the conversation starter. And people come to our events wearing red shoes. So my favorite shoes, of course, have to be red. Of course. Let's say there would be some red wedges. Mm. With, yeah, there would be Suede some red wedges. or leather? Leather. Mm-hmm. Leather. And I would say the front of them would be some wingtips. Ooh. Yeah. How high would the wedge be? They would be about four inches. Mm. And you don't trip. No. <laughs> You've got good balance. Have to. <laughs> you got to do it. Well, Lovey, this has been just a pleasure to uh, get to speak with you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I've loved reading your blog. I've loved reading your book. And I really look forward to watching you continue to make the kind of impact uh, that you're making and and really helping to make the world a better place. 
Honestly, I feel like we can all make the world a better place. We can all try. We can all try. You don't have to start a nonprofit. You don't have to write a book. But I think in our everyday lives, there's things that we can do that could actively make either somebody else's life better or the world a little bit less sucky. So <laughs> that's honestly what I want people to think about every single day. And um, that's what I'm hoping I'm encouraging folks to do. And while they're laughing, of course, because I think laughter helps all along. Well, I think you're off to a hell of a start, Lovey. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Okay. Good luck. Thank you. I look for your column. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's now time for our very first installment of our segment, What's on the Front Table? The front table in the bookstore is where we as booksellers put out the books that we think we love, that we think people have been reading about, we think they'll want to know about. So it is the first place that we get the opportunity to, we'll call it, talk to a customer. We are joined today on Just the Right Book by Lissa Muscatine, who is the owner of Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C. And Politics and Prose, for those of you who don't know, is an iconic bookstore that's a model for the rest of us in the industry. And Lissa and her husband, both Washington Post journalists, uh, bought Politics and Prose. Lissa, how many years ago? Five and a half. Wow. Five and a half years ago. And uh, Lissa is also a former speechwriter for Hillary Clinton and uh, then took the plunge into book selling. And we could probably do a whole show on second career or third careers taking over a bookstore. But in the meantime, Lissa, welcome to Just the Right Book. I am so excited to to be on this program with you, Roxanne. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, Roxanne is the icon. She is our mentor. <laughs> We've learned everything we know from you. So thank you for being so generous, uh, a teacher of ours. Well, we, we all have to do it. It's a small industry. So, Lisa, you are our debut person for a segment called What's on the Front Table and Why. This is a show all about uh, reading and great books and why people are reading and things going on in the industry and things going on in bookstores. And one of the things that independent bookstores like Politics and Prose or R.J. Julia or Books and Books or Pals are all about is independent judgment. Uh, Either because we're bad business people or we're fiercely independent, we don't do that. We put books on the front table uh, because we love them, we think our customers will love them, or we think they have great jackets. So learning about what's on the front table at a bookstore, I think, is a glimpse into kind of inside a bookstore about what's exciting, what's got a buzz about it, what's provocative, or the right book for the time. So Lissa is our guinea pig here, and we're going to ask you, Lissa, what's on your front table? No pressure whatsoever being the <laughs> guinea pig, of course. Um, no, you know, it's a great question, and I think you you summed up exactly kind of the way we come about these decisions. Sometimes it's just what we really love. I would say that right now, though, is the third thing you mentioned, at least when it comes to our store. And, of course, we're in Washington, so we're kind of in the hot seat. There's nothing happening at all in Washington right now, <laughs> as you know. Um, but we we feel very much that we want to reflect and respond to 
uh, current events and things that people are talking about, things that pe- are troubling people, things that people are excited about. And of course, the election, you know, has really uh, shaken a lot of our customers, quite frankly, not to mention, I think, a lot of the country. And we've been very, very determined to make sure that politics and prose and as an independent bookstore is a refuge for people, a place where they know that they can learn and stay informed and have constructive uh, discussion about across the political spectrum, by the way, um, on a range of issues. And so we feel a real determination um, to make sure that we uphold that mission and that we do it with extra energy right now in this particularly divisive and challenging moment for the country. So we have devoted our front table to a display of books that we call Don't Give Up, Stand Up, Read Up. (laughs) And it includes books that are really about uh, political engagement and activism, and also about trying to explain the populist anger and rage, energy, whatever you want to call it, that has given rise to Donald Trump uh, here in the United States, but also to some of the movements around the world that um, have elected similar sorts of people. And so that's what our display on the front table is right now. So what? give us some titles and okay, well, why you that know, and, one. Okay, so, you know, I will give you one of my personal favorites, and it's kind of obvious, so forgive me. But because, as you mentioned, I, you know, I, I was a longtime speechwriter for Hillary Clinton and, of course, uh, was really hoping she was going to get elected. And I do think that she was subjected to a lot of things, some of her own making, but not all. And um, certainly a double standard as a woman candidate, the first major uh, party nominee who was a woman. So I think everybody should go off and read We Should All Be Feminists by Chimamanda Adichie. You know, she's such a fantastic writer. Anybody who's read Americana knows that. But she really does explore here what it means to be a woman and kind of gives a very modern definition of feminism that I think is particularly useful anyway, but particularly at this moment when a lot of people are trying to kind of grapple with whether this election was in part about sexism or how much of it was about sexism and what does it mean for women and so on and so forth. So that would be one of my top picks. So um, let me you know, ask tiny, one question. Tiny little book, too. You can read it really quickly. Oh, good. See, that's always good information for people yeah. uh, to know. So here's a question. She obviously published this book before the outcome of the election, uh, which Correct. is interesting. And do you think what she wrote about informs how we might think about the outcome of the election? You know, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, talk, talking about feminism or writing about feminism or reading about it, I think people tend to bring their own experiences to it. So yeah. it may be one of those books that just sort of evokes whatever happens to be particular to the person reading it. It's a little Rorschachy, shocky. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but I also, you know, I, by the way, I also think men should read it. And she's such a terrific writer. So that would be one. Uh, another, and again, this is a huge book now, is Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. Mm. And I'm sure you've been selling it uh, at R.J. Julia. Um, for those who don't know about it, this is a, quote, memoir uh, written by a guy who's in his early 30s, and he kind of makes fun of himself for writing a memoir at, you know, at age 30, whatever he is. But he grew up in a, a very um, tough part of Ohio that is really could easily be in West Virginia or Kentucky, sort of a a real Appalachian uh, part of Ohio from a family that is uh, suffering from many, many of the afflictions that are um, kind of at work in this election, poverty, lack of education, drug addiction, domestic violence, 
you name it. He himself is a, a white man, he's a Christian, he's straight, and he grew up poor, and he's young. So he has a very interesting take on what it was like to grow up with this background. Miraculously, he got out, and he ends up going to the Marines and then going to Ohio State and discovers that he's actually smart and competent at school, which he hadn't really known up until then. And he ends up going to Yale Law School and marries a woman from Yale Law School, now lives in California in the Bay Area. But he writes a very, it's a very poignant and painful book. It's not political. It's really a sort of a cultural expose where he is yearning to understand his former world and his current world and clearly is still having trouble bridging the chasm between them. But it's a very insightful book for people who want to understand who Donald Trump was appealing to and why. Very good storyteller. He's a, it's, it's just a very straightforward book, don't you think? Yeah, I do. You know what? I always think books, fiction or nonfiction, do really effectively is they tell the story so well that you are in the shoes of the storyteller. And I think he did a very good job with Hillbilly Elegy, where there are people in the country who might feel like there's not a way for them to really understand that environment and that world. And yet he accomplishes that. And I think it's been the appeal of it. Totally agree. And a very a, a book that has a sort of similar aim, but, but with a very different uh, kind of context, is "Strangers in Their Own Land" by Arlie Russell Hochschild, which um, is you know it, 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 this is a sociologist rather than a, a person who grew up in Appalachia writing a memoir. And um, in this case, Hochschild spent years uh, studying Tea Party supporters in Louisiana, and really kind of allows those voices to emerge in this in this book. And it's a pretty powerful book sort of gets to the same sort of thing that Hillbilly Elegy does, but from a very different perspective. So those are two phenomenal books if you're trying to understand this really uh, powerful cultural dynamic that's and political dynamic that's at work right now in this country and not, not to mention beyond our country. Yeah. How about one more? Okay. I, you know, boy, that's going to be tough. I will, I guess I'm going to give you The Fight to Vote by Michael Waldman. Um, he's the head of the Brennan Center in New York actually was a colleague of mine at the White House back in the Clinton administration, and he's terrific. And he has written a book that traces the history of voting rights in this country. And, you know, people are sort of bored by that and yawn. Mm-hmm. First of all, the history is fascinating. And it, what it makes you realize is that as soon as Voting Rights uh, Act was passed, you know, decades ago, it was being systematically um, taken apart. And now we are today, ironically, at a point where people probably have fewer rights uh, going to the polls than they did even 30 or 40 years ago. So it's a, you know, can you believe book. you're even saying that? No, Lisa? I can't. And that's why I think this book is a, is a really important book for people to read, because it explains to you exactly how this has happened and the orchestration and intentionality with which it has happened. And, I, you know, we're in for more of this, believe me. So, you know, people need to understand what it means, how, how it can affect the outcome of elections, what they can do in response uh, if they believe in a greater democracy. And it's just, you know, it's kind of people kind of yawn at the subject, but he's a great writer and it's a really, really good and important book. So, and I could give you about 10 more that are equally good and important, but I won't. So let me ask you two other questions related to the front table, because I think um, these are great suggestions. Now, you're in Washington, so you are in the heat of it. Do you find people want to read more about this or want to read less about this? 
You know, that is a great question, and it's funny you should ask, because before we put up this display table, which we just put up literally right after the election, we had in the week or or two weeks leading up to the election a anything but the election table (laughs) with books, you know, about, you know, satire and Zen meditation and, you know, how to go to your yoga class. I mean, just everything but politics, but the election. And we thought that was kind of fun and probably what everybody needed at that point, not ever realizing we would have to take it down Mm. the second the election happened, unfortunately. But no, so I think we, our customers have needed both. Our customers, like you said, we're in the hotbed right now of political emotion, and our customers are very, very much wanting to learn more about some of these issues. They really want to know what they can do. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, the other big piece. That's what we're hearing. We're hearing they still are, la, 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 I'd like to be distracted, you know, tell me a happy book with a happy ending, tell me everything's going to be okay, what I call the willful blindness pool, um, which I'm in someday, so I'm yeah, totally sure. sympathetic. And then I think there's a lot of interest in sort of rediscovering um, the importance of our role as citizens and what makes sense for us to re-participate in the process so that we do have a voice because, you know, we're a democracy and part of being a democracy is the responsibility, right, of being a citizen. No, absolutely. And it's also being armed with with, you know, we're, we're living, as we have now, we now know, going through the last 18 months of this campaign, we've kind of gone into an evidence-free zone. You know, facts <laughs> don't seem to matter that much. So people just, you know, they don't even know what's true anymore. And so I think, you know, bookstores with all these great books can help people kind of anchor themselves in information that is meaningful and useful, especially if they want to then try to make a change. And so, no, I, I agree with you. But, I, you know, I do think we go back and forth. Some days you just can't face it, and some days you want to dive into it. Yeah. And so it's nice to have, have a range to choose from, which is exactly why we're, you know, we're there for, for our communities. So our last question, I, I, actually it's a two-part question, Lisa. So if one puts you on the spot, don't even answer it. But one is um, what you're reading now, and the other question would be, any any inkling of what you think is going to be the hot book uh, for the holiday season? Oh, boy, that is a tough question, isn't it? We're um, trying to figure that out still. Yeah. Um, okay, first of all, what, have I, what am I just reading? I just finished Swing Time by Zadie Smith, which I really liked a Great. lot. And by the way, you know, I wish Donald Trump would read it, but I'm sure... Actually, I just wish he would read, but if he were <laughs> going to read, this would be a good book for him to read if he really wants to understand you know, the contemporary world. Um, But, you know, she's just such a great writer. I love her anyway, and I love that book. What is going to be big? You know, that is such a good question, Roxanne. Wow. Um, I do think Swing Time will be pretty pretty big. Yeah. So, Lisa, I would say I'm going to give you an A-plus as our debut (laughs) What's on the Front Table person, not merely because we're good friends or I love your bookstore. (laughs) I think that has a lot to do with it, but thank you. I appreciate it, but it's so fun, um, and I think it's great that you're doing this, and nobody better in the entire business to be doing this. So thank you so much for having me. Well, you're sweet. We're going to have you back on, Lisa. Thank you so much. Anytime, Roxanne. Have fun. Take care. Make sure to pick up a copy of Lovey Ajayi's book, I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual. Just the Right Book podcast returns with a brand new episode next week, and we're kicking it off 
with our guest, Rachel Kushner, the author of The Mars Room, and Lisa Muscatine will join us again from Politics and Prose to talk about what's on her front table. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. Our audio engineer is Greg Session. And our editor is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.